the Lord. Christ is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. Has he abandoned the church? How does he rule the church from heaven? The Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. How is she united with him, the head, now that he is in heaven? The answer to these questions is, Christ rules the church through the Spirit, and she is united with him through the Spirit. This is what the Bible teaches and what the church confesses. Therefore, my assignment this afternoon is to preach the word of God as summarized by Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism. The sermon theme is, Christ is always with his bride. He has sent the Holy Spirit. We will see two points. First, the Holy Spirit is God. And second, the Holy Spirit exalts Christ in the church. Christ is always with his church. He has sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ in the church. In the catechism, we confess that the Holy Spirit is together with the Father and the Son, the true and eternal God. What does the catechism mean? Does the catechism say that the Holy Spirit is a force? Or does the catechism say that the Holy Spirit is mere power? Or does the catechism say that the Holy Spirit is a spirit that we produce when we gather together? No. The catechism confesses that the Holy Spirit is God that is equal in nature and dignity to God the Father and God the Son. The Holy Spirit shares the unfathomable, meaning the, the deep, deep beyond our understanding, intimacy existing between the Father and the Son. But where does the catechism get this teaching? So let us open our Bible to see in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In this passage, Jesus appears to his disciples and give them what we call the Great Commission. What do you notice with the word name? You can check. There is no S. Why? Jesus is giving three names, but he says baptize 
in one name. Why? Because Jesus is saying, baptize them in the name of the Trinitarian God. One God, three persons or subsistences. The three divine persons are so united that they carry together one name. The Father is a person. The Son is a person. So it follows that the Spirit is a person too. Let us open our Bibles again in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In this passage, we see that God the Son, Jesus, is getting baptized. God the Spirit, as a dove, comes and rests on Jesus. And God the Father speaks from heaven. So what do we understand? We understand that the three persons of the Godhead are intimately linked to the point of carrying a single name, yet those three persons are also distinct. Let us open our Bibles a third time in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Here, the Apostle Paul is warning the Corinthians because they had a wrong understanding of what the church is. Consequently, they had divisions among themselves. The Apostle is telling them that the church is God's temple and that God will take revenge on anyone who harms his temple, the church. Why is the church God's temple? Because the Holy Spirit indwells the church. Thus, we understand that in this passage, the Apostle Paul uses the name Holy Spirit and God interchangeably. In other words, the Holy Spirit is God. So when we synthesize, when we put together the three passages that we have read so far, meaning the passage of the Great Commission where Jesus speaks of the name of the Trinitarian God, then the passage of Jesus' baptism where we distinguish between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and finally the passage in which the Apostle Paul calls the Holy Spirit God, what do we understand? What do we understand when we put those three together? We understand that the Holy Spirit is God, just like the Father, 
just like the Son. The Holy Spirit shares in that deep, transcending intimacy that the Son has with the Father. So all the three persons of the Trinity have lives in themselves, yet they have always been together. The Father has never been without the Son, the Son has never been without the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, too, has never been without the Father. And that's why, although three distinct persons, they can carry the same name, one name. Therefore, the Catechism is right when it confesses that the Holy Spirit is together with the Father and the Son, true, eternal God. Now, you might be wondering, I want the gospel, and you are confusing me with this doctrine. Don't you know that the Trinity is a complicated subject? Yeah, I understand, and you are right, but only in part. It is complicated, yes, but it is also very much important for our salvation. Let me ask you this question. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that God loves us without expecting anything in return from us? How? We know that because he is a triune God. From all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have loved each other perfectly. God in the Trinity is self-sufficient. He does not need the creation to satisfy his emotional needs. Because the Trinitarian God is self-sufficient, the Father could afford to sacrifice his Son for wretched sinners who will never be able to pay him back. And this is the God of Scripture, the one that we all need to have. The Trinitarian God is the one who saves for his own namesake. He guides you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He is the one who says, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel. The Trinitarian God is the one who says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hair, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? There is no other God like the Christian God. The God of Islam, for example, is a Unitarian God. What does this mean? It means that the God of Islam is a single person. No Father, no Son, no Holy Spirit, simply God. What does this imply? It implies that the God of Islam could not love before the creation. Before creating, he could not love anyone. 
Before creating, he could not communicate. It is a God then who is not self-sufficient. It is a God who needs your service. In other words, the God of Islam is an idol, just like all the false gods. They need our service. But the God of heaven, the God of the Bible, doesn't need our service. He's self-sufficient. So, and that's why he is the only true God, the Trinitarian God. The Holy Spirit, together with the Father and the Son, is true and eternal God. Further, the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who applies, the, who applies to the church the love of the Trinity. By the Holy Spirit, the Father loves you as much as he loves Christ. By the Holy Spirit, Christ loves you as much as he loves the Father. And by the Holy Spirit, the triune God loves the church as much as he loves himself. Now, how does the Holy Spirit communicate the Trinity's love to the church? The Holy Spirit communicates that love by exalting Christ in the church. Let us see then in greater details how the Holy Spirit exalts Christ in the church. This will be our second point. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ in the church. We read, Second, he, meaning the Holy Spirit, is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits. What does the catechism mean? When the church confesses that the Holy Spirit is given also to me, she confesses that the Holy Spirit is given not only to other peoples, but also to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He resides in the church and in the heart of all who belong to Christ. Excuse me. Do you remember that passage that we saw in 1 Corinthians 3.16? In our first point, there, the Apostle Paul was warning the Corinthians not to destroy the church. Why? Because the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. At the community level, we are all living stones that the Holy Spirit uses to build a spiritual temple to God. Why are we those living stones? Because the Holy Spirit is in us. Our bodies have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Although we were dead in our sins and trespasses, the Holy Spirit has made us alive in Christ by transforming our dead hearts, the hearts of stones, into hearts of flesh. We are born again people. We are spiritual people. Holy Spirit indwelt people. That's what we are. Just as Jesus Christ himself said to his disciples that if anyone embraces him, 
He will come with the Father and they will reside in the heart of that person. How do they reside? They reside with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in us. So remember that. Remember that the Holy Spirit indwells you when the devil, the world, and your flesh are tempting you to sin against God. When they lie to you, telling you that you will find joy in sinning against God. Yes, you might find a superficial joy for a time, but it will turn into bitter lemon. Why? Because you are born again. It is not your nature to sin against God continuously. So when you start becoming indifferent toward the church, when you become prone to criticize the church, when you start focusing only on your needs and not on the needs of God's people, remember that the church is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to you. The Holy Spirit is given to the church. We also confess with the catechism that the Holy Spirit is given to you to make you share in Christ and all his benefits by true faith. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to me, but also, not only to others, please, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merit. True faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And it is a gift that we receive when we listen to the world, when we hear the word preach. Just as it is written, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Thus, faith is the Holy Spirit's instrument to unite us with Christ. Such a union goes beyond our understanding. Jesus also illustrates it in the Gospel of John with the parable of the vine and the branches. What does he say there? There he says that he, Jesus, is the vine and we are the branches. Just like the branches cannot live alone but depend on the tree for everything, we depend on Christ for everything. The Holy Spirit is the one connecting us as branches to the tree, Jesus. The Holy Spirit has grafted us into Christ. He has incorporated us into Christ to the point that we are Christ's body. We have been crucified with Christ. We are no longer living, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. So stated otherwise, we are in Christ. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. Christ's history is 
our history. His obedience, our obedience. His righteousness, our righteousness. But that union with Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a mysterious work. But we embrace it by faith. Why? Because scriptures speak of it. And because in the light of scripture, we see the fruits of that union in our lives. So what are some of the objective fruits of that spirit-worked union with Christ? There are many of them, but we see two of them on which we can put our fingers. First, we have the comfort, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian can testify of the comfort that he receives from the Holy Spirit in times of trials and temptations. When we are afflicted, why do we look in scriptures for consolation? Why do we have great expectation when we are preparing for the Lord's Supper? Because we know that somehow we will receive comfort, encouragement, and motivation to persevere in faith. And that comfort comes from the Holy Spirit. But it's not all. The Holy Spirit also gives us comfort concerning the life to come. Scripture says in Ephesians 1:14 that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. In some other translation, the guarantee of the things that are to come. This means, what does it mean? It means that the portion of the Holy Spirit that we have today is just a sample of what we receive when Christ returns. At that time, we will receive the Holy Spirit, the full portion of the Holy Spirit, as much as as human beings we are able to receive. And we we will experience then his comfort to the fullest extent possible. And at that time also, we will experience the eternal Sabbath that God has reserved for us in Christ. So this was the first fruit. The second fruit of the Holy Spirit work on which we can put our fingers is sanctification. What is sanctification? It is a process by which we become more and more like Christ, more and more devoted to God. If you are old enough, you can look back and see what the Holy Spirit has been doing in your life. You can see that many things that you considered in the past to be little sins, today you see them as big sins. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. You can see in your heart an increased hatred of what God hates and an increased love of Christ. This too is the work of the Holy Spirit. If you are young, you can see an an increased interest in the things of God, a desire to have a deeper understanding of the Bible, of your faith, a desire to make your profession of faith before the church. What is that? That too is an aspect of sanctification, 
an aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit. No matter your age, you can see that the more you apply yourself to the things of God, the more you have the power to say no to sin. The more you have the power to walk in freedom, freedom to obey God, freedom to worship in spirit and in truth. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit provides freedom, just as it is written, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, let us recapitulate what we have seen so far in this second point. We saw that the role of the Holy Spirit is to unite us with Christ and to exalt Christ in the church. How does the Holy Spirit perform that work of exaltation? At the community level, the Holy Spirit makes us the temple of God. At the personal level, he makes us living stones for that spiritual temple. He also exalts Christ in us by comforting us in trials and temptations and by sanctifying us. So what do we understand from this? We understand many things. And one of the things that we understand is that the so-called charismatics of today are wrong. What does charismatic mean? Charismatic comes from the Greek word charisma, which refers to spiritual endowment, spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us. And nowadays, we use the word charismatic to refer to those churches and individuals whose worship focuses on the manifestation of the gift of the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, doing miracles, and receiving healings. But do those people truly deserve such a name, the name charismatic? Does that truly focus on the Holy Spirit and his gift, as the Bible calls us to? The answer is no, they do not. Why? Let us see. In those churches, is Christ exalted? No. But miracles, speaking in tongue, the so-called prophecies and spiritual experiences. In those churches, is the word of Christ taken seriously? No. The so-called prophecies and experiences are elevated above the word of God. People's imaginations are said to be God's word. People say that God spoke to them in their dreams. So, those people are not true charismatic. Who then are the true charismatics? In the biblical sense of the terms, meaning those who really abide by the work of the Holy Spirit and give him the honor that he deserves. If we define charismatics in that way, then we, the reformed people, are the true charismatics. Why? Because we truly believe in the spirit. We understand, as we have just confessed, that 
the Spirit is divine. He is not a power or a force that we try to manipulate. We give to the Spirit the place that His Word, the Word that He has inspired, says that He has. We submit to the Word that He has inspired. And we do not need drums and vocalists and all those other kind of excitements to excite us. The inspired Word of God itself excites us. And as a result, Christ is exalted among us and his lordship is clearly visible. So what our church confesses, that is reformed theology, is the theology of the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge the deep connections between the spirit and the word. We say with scriptures that no prophecy of scriptures was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. We confess from scriptures that the Spirit has not come to exalt himself, but Christ, just as we have read in the passage of John at the beginning. And how does the Spirit do such exaltation? By opening our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to enable us to see Christ in the written word. So, if someone says to you again, you reformed people believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Scriptures, instead of God the Spirit, do not be impressed. If someone tells you, God spoke to me, it's false, do not be impressed. Do not be impressed by the so-called spiritual experiences. Do not be impressed, especially if you're a teenager, by the music bands. You have the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. You have the certified, authenticated testimony that the Spirit wants you to know. The Bible, you have it. So... Do you want to know the Spirit? Read the Bible. Learn the confessions. And you will know what the Spirit says about himself. You will hear him say to you, Son, daughter, do not focus on me. Do not focus on me. I am here to make you know Christ. Amen.